Good morning. See, many of you are dressed very comfortably today. Looking forward to a picnic. Maybe not as comfortable as when you were worshiping from home in your pajamas, but comfortable nonetheless. It's good to be here today. I want to begin by asking you a question. What do you think is the biggest problem that we face today? What would you say? Well, I googled that question, and I asked, what is the biggest problem facing the world today? And I wanted to see what the first answer that came up from the first website at the top. And I discovered, after asking that question on different days, that there would be different answers. <laughs> but the last time I checked this past week, Wikipedia came up, and they referenced the World Economic Forum giving the 10 top answers. And this is what they listed. Food security, inclusive growth, future of work slash unemployment, climate change, financial crisis of 07 through 08, future of the internet slash fourth industrial revolution, gender equality, global trade and investment and regulatory frameworks, long-term investment slash investment strategy, and future healthcare. What do you think? Are these the biggest problems we face today? Or is there something missing? Something bigger? Is there a bigger problem? Is there a much bigger problem? A problem so big that any one of these things on this list, or even all ten of them combined, would not even come close to second place. This morning, I want to share with you a problem that directly connects to this biggest problem that we face today. And the problem I want to address that's connected to the biggest problem is that of entitlement. It would seem that uh, the lessons that I teach our youth tend to uh, turn into sermons. I was not planning to preach on this. Um, after I did a class uh, earlier this summer with our youth in our YBF class, uh, I had, someone requested that I preach on this. And uh, I wasn't going to, and I thought about it and thought about it, and, and yet here we are. And um, it's important because it, I don't want to tend to, I don't like to, to, to preach on topics or subjects, but sometimes it's a good thing to do and it's important to do that we have a, a biblical perspective when it comes to this said topic. In any topic we look at, whatever the subject may be. And I was not here for the Family Life Hour a couple of weeks ago. I was on vacation. But if I may, just for a, for a moment, share that we have our lessons laid out for every Wednesday night this coming school year, as well as every Sunday morning. Um, for, for, this, for the 2021-2022 school calendar year. And there are some topics that we will cover throughout that, that time. For example, on Wednesday night, we're going to begin by talking about the importance of having a biblical worldview. And we're going to look at the subject of relationships, relationships with one another, relationships with parents and those in authority, relationships with the opposite gender. And then we're going to take some time 
to study the book of Luke, the first two chapters of Luke, the last four chapters of Luke, and that will all coincide with Christmas and Easter. And then on Sunday mornings, we're going to study the doctrine of God. And we'll spend four chapters then, uh, or four uh, lessons looking at the first four chapters of Acts. And, but we're going to spend till the end of the calendar year looking at the attributes of God. Four months on this. And you might ask, well, why are you spending so much time talking about God with our youth? Well, as A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And Steve Lawson comments, everything else that comes to your mind is secondary and subsidiary to what comes to your mind when you think of God. Your whole life, whether you realize it or not, is being driven and directed by who you believe God is. In other words, how you view God, if it's a low view or a high view, will affect your life, and it will certainly affect your worship of him every day, including this morning. And so having a biblical worldview on any given topic or subject is essential for the believer. God's word is truth. And so let's ask the Lord this morning to teach, reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness today, that we, the people of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work before us, that the Lord would sanctify us through his word. There is not one particular passage we're going to look at today. We're going to be bouncing around because this is a topical message. Uh, but if there was one I would have you turn to even now, that would be 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. There are five points I want to make this morning as we address the problem with enlightenment. The first three points we will spend the most time on. The second point is when we will get into 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and you can turn there now, uh, and then we'll look at it when we get to the second point. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, pray that you would help me this morning. Help me as I speak. And I know that my words are limited. They are not inerrant. But your word is. And so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness this morning. That you would sanctify us through the listening of your word. And that your spirit would help us to respond in such a way that is glorifying to you. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Is entitlement a problem? Is it a problem for the average American? I asked our students at the beginning of this summer if it is a problem for the average American teenager. I asked them, is it a problem for the average American Christian teenager. I asked them, is it a problem for the average American Christian adult? Well, before we can address this, we need to make sure we all understand what we are talking about. We need to define, define entitlement. And entitlement is this. It is the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. The belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. I am a man. 
or I am a woman, or I am white, or I am black, or I am wealthy, or I am poor. Therefore, I am entitled to blank. I am an American. I am a human being. I am entitled to fill in the blank. This mindset can affect everyone, and it does each and every one of us. And I asked our students, what does a typical American teenager believe that they are entitled to? And I said, we can include adults as well. What does an average American adult believe they're entitled to? And I had a very large uh, white erase board up on, at the front of the class, and I began to list what they, what they shared. And I want to share with you what they gave. We had also from youth leaders in the class, and, and there's a few I added at the end here. And, but this is what they said. Good education. We are entitled to good education. To own a cell phone. To go where I want to go and do what I want to do. To be provided for. Good health care. Food. And if you're a boy, a young man, lots of food. <laughs> Freedom. A high-paying good job. To be served. And the example here was, for example, going to a restaurant. And it doesn't matter how big of a mess I make on the table, in the chairs, in the booth, all over the floor. Someone will take care of it. My own opinion. Nice stuff. A computer, a knife, video games, the ability to complain. I'm entitled to complain. To own a nice car or truck. Returns. For example, I buy something, I break it, or I drop it in the toilet, or I don't water it. I can return it, even if it's my fault, and get my money back or get another one. Activity, to be able to participate in whatever sport, be in any play, any musical, to be in band, to be in dance, to be in uh, gymnastics, and to have all of the equipment, the best equipment I can have to be able to do those things. Theft. I don't know if you've seen in the news how uh, shoplifting has become a thing during the middle of the day where employees and even security stands by and lets it happen with the thought that they have good reason they're entitled to take what they're taking. Pleasure and love, and of course, love defined by the individual. And even the most basic thing is life. Now, many of these things are good. Life is good. Food is needed. Education is important. But some of these things are not so good. But what is the problem when we think we deserve these things? Even good things. Even something as simple as life. The problem is that we think we deserve them. This is where entitlement is not only a problem, but is connected to the biggest problem we face today. We believe we are entitled to life. We, are, we believe we are entitled to eternal life. 
We believe we are entitled to heaven when in fact we are actually entitled to something very different. We are inherently deserving of something far different. What are we inherently deserving of? Is it heaven? Eternal life? Life? No. It is death. It is God's wrath. It is judgment. It is perfect justice. It is hell, eternal. So Romans 6, 20 through 23, written to the church in Rome, God's people, for they knew, knew what they were like apart from Christ before they, re, they knew Christ. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard of righteous, or to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? You see, they look back now upon their life before Christ, and they see their lives as a slave to sin, and they are ashamed of it. For the end of those things is death. And this is what we are actually entitled to. Death. God's wrath. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The sin nature that, that we need to be delivered from, that was inherited from Adam, passed down and through every person and every generation, even parents here to our own children, we passed it on. We are all born into sin. Verse 20, 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, don't miss this. Both before and after. Both those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ are entitled to death. Both deserve death, but one will not receive what is justly deserved. One will not receive what they are entitled to. They will instead receive the free gift of God, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. We've all earned our wages in our sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is a message for the church in Rome, for God's people to be reminded of and know, and not just for someone who might be seeking God or hearing about God for the first time, which is also important for the Scriptures can make us wise unto salvation, but it's important for the church to remember and we need to remember this today because more and more people and more and more pastors and more and more churches are refusing to talk about this. They will talk about redemption. They will talk about salvation. But redemption and salvation from what? From hardship? From pain? From suffering? Really? Really? For the first disciples following Jesus meant there was going to be intense suffering. For them to be free from a life of suffering would have been better for the twelve to run as far away from Jesus as they could get when he called him to himself. 
What did Jesus say to them? He said, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The day before, it wouldn't have been like that. But now, because of Christ, that's the case. And they would find themselves around these packs of wolves, religious leaders, their own people, who would flog them in their synagogues. And they couldn't run to the government because the governors and the kings would use them as entertainment and call them criminals in the Colosseum. Even family, brother turning in brothers, parents turning in children, and children, parents to be put to death. And Jesus summarized in Matthew 10.22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is through the narrow gate. This is the road that Jesus talked about, the hard road, in which only a few find. Certainly not an easy life, not an easy road, but ultimately leads, the only road that leads to life. And to present the gospel just, or Jesus as the Redeemer, to present the gospel where Jesus as the Redeemer is here to redeem us from hardship and pain and suffering is nothing more than a watered-down version of the health and wealth gospel. We are not redeemed from wrong done to us. We are not redeemed from hardship. We are not redeemed from illness. That is a benefit and a gift that will come in eternity. No, we are redeemed from our own selves, our own sin, our own flesh. We are saved from our biggest problem, and our biggest problem is a holy and righteous God. You see, the problem with entitlement is that we do not understand what we are entitled to. We are entitled to death. We are entitled to God's wrath. And the students were right when we listed these things that they believe the average student and adult believes that they're entitled to, all of these things. But in reality, we are not entitled to any of them. We are not even entitled to life. And there was one answer that was not given. You see? You see it missing? The only thing that we are entitled to, and that is death. Now, let's not confuse charity with wrong thinking here. Let's talk about death. Death is not the end. Death is not annihilation. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul refers to the coming judgment of Christ who will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire. In the second half of verse 7 through 10, he writes, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And if we stop there, we could probably conclude that death and destruction is just as it sounds, that it's annihilation. It's the end of the existence of any given soul, that he or she would just cease to exist from this point on forever and ever. But that is not the case at all. I am in the middle of reading a wonderful book called What Happens After I Die, written by Dr. Michael Rogers. 
retired pastor, lead pastor from Westminster Presbyterian Church that I meet with regularly as a mentor to me. And I want to share with you just a few quotes from this book. And I appreciate what he states when he says this, and I quote, I dearly wish that eternal destruction could mean simple extinction or obliteration. I desire it. But to tell you so would be to perjure myself as a teacher of God's word. Eternal destruction at its bare minimum means banishment from the blessing and protection of the living God. God will most assuredly rule over the hell they occupy, but never will his smile of goodness or his mercy mitigate the disaster experienced there. Look at the rest of this passage in 2 Thessalonians. Back to verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that date to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see, eternal destruction is an eternity away from God's good presence, away from his glory, away from his might. And you can read more about this at the end of Revelation if you want details. Dr. Rogers then quotes um, for 1 Thessalonians 5.3 that while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, I've never experienced labor pains, but I was there when my wife did with all four of our children. The first two, she did naturally, no epidural. And that was intense, I will say. The only pain I experienced was the immense pressure of my hand being squeezed. <laughs> it was unforgettable. It isn't this the world today? Life, peace, security, and then sudden destruction, like labor pains that cannot be escaped. I was grilling burgers the night before last for dinner. I could see a storm just starting to brew over um, next to our, where my house was. Never saw any rain, but there was such a massive flash of lightning. And then the thunder hit, and it was so massive, like, you know, that kind of thunder that just hits you right in your chest, the, the low base of that thing. Uh, no car in my neighborhood driving by with a sound system or in my neighborhood a buggy even driving by could have base like that. And for a moment I thought, you know what, God, that, could, that could be exactly what it's like when Jesus returns. Was not expecting it. When all of a sudden, you know, I'm thinking about growing burgers. <laughs> and he could come right now. And nothing else would matter. Not even the most important thing to me at that moment, and that was making sure the burgers don't burn. <laughs> nothing else would matter. Dr. Rogers refers to hell as the default destination for all human beings, the default destination. Isaiah 53, 6, 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Romans 3, 10, and 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. And Dr. Rogers states, please get this. The Bible never confuses unbelief with innocent neutrality. Unbelief is, in fact, the worst of all sins. God's explicit verdict upon it is condemnation. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son, of the only Son of God. And Jesus spoke of hell. He actually spoke about it more than he did of heaven. And Bishop J.C. Ryle states that no sin is so great, so damning, or so ruinous as unbelief. In one sense, it is the unpardonable sin. Nothing is so provoking and offensive to God as to refuse the mighty salvation he has provided at so mighty a cost by the death of his only begotten son. Nothing is so suicidal on the part of a man as to turn away from the only remedy which can heal his soul. And the last quote from Dr. Rogers I will share, and I am very sobered by, and when he points out in chapter 3 of the Westminster Confessional, and as he earlier pointed out that hell is our default destination, he wrote this, and I quote, All the most high needs to do for anyone to be condemned is to just to pass by that person. God presses no one toward hell against his will. He simply does not change your predetermined direction. You cannot lay any blame at his feet. The right question is never, why do some go to hell? The question we ought to ponder is, why should even one determinedly hell-bound soul ever be saved? And as I read that, I thought, God, why me? Why me? You see, this is not a minor problem. This is the biggest problem we face today, and it will be the biggest problem until judgment. We will all be judged. Everyone. Do you know that? Do you realize that? Believer and non-believer, those who are saved and those who are not saved, even those who think they are saved because they believe they are entitled to life and everlasting life, when in reality, they are not. And that is why the, I say that the problem of entitlement is deeply connected to the biggest problem we face today. And the problem of entitlement is that it is deceptive. We've been deceived into believing that we are entitled to something that we do not deserve. Eternal life and even life for today. Even being able to go to a picnic on this day. We are deceived by what we have and by what we do not have. We are deceived by what we have in abundance and by what we want. And Job was perplexed in Job 21, in which he looked at the prosperous, those who in verses 14 and 15, he, he, he says, they, they say this to God. He, they say, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Isn't that our world today? And Job looks upon the world 
and sees their prosperity, and he's perplexed in verses 8 through 13. He says, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock, and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace. They go down to Sheol. Prosperity is deceptive. And so is want. Job then says in verses 23 through 26 that one dies in full vigor. Being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. And they lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. It's not hard to find where this deception comes from, this deception of entitlement. Satan is real. He prowls around us, whispering lies in our ears, to our hearts. But let's not give him all the credit. We're really good at deceiving ourselves. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our minds, to see and know the Word of God that we need to teach and reprove and correct and train us in righteousness so that we will not be so easily deceived. And the only way out of this problem is to simply receive Jesus Christ. He is the only way to be saved. It is by grace through faith that that can come. Let me share with you another problem with entitlement. Another problem with entitlement is that it promotes laziness. Entitlement promotes laziness, that we deserve these things, even if we do nothing about it. Just simply being an American, that my title entitles me to benefits. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is an amazing passage in light of this issue of entitlement. Let me just read through the passage, and then we'll come back and look through it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the t- tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. 
If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There are three commands in this passage. And the first is found in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the, tradi tra with the tradition that you received from us. Who is we? Who is us here? And that is Paul, that is Timothy, that is Silas. They've also written First uh, Thessalonians. And the command is to the people of God in Thessalonica to keep away from a brother who is walking in idleness. What is idleness? Well, this is the Greek word atactus, which means undisciplined, irresponsible, or disorderly. That they were to stay away from anyone walking in an undisciplined, irresponsible, or disorderly manner. In other words, they were lazy. They were lazy. And they said, instead, walk in the way that we showed you how to walk. Verses 7 through 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. We were not undisciplined. We were not irresponsible. We were not disorderly when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day. Why would they do this? Why would they not even receive bread? Why would they, with their hands, work and labor and toil night and day? The end of verse 8. That we might not be a burden to any of you. That's the pattern that is set. And then verse 9 is probably the strongest verse against entitlement. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. It would have been okay as they came to disciple, to teach, to correct, to train, and to be provided for. That would have been okay. Even the basic thing is bread. But they did not do that. Because they were willing to work. And they did so. And that was the example set. That the church was to follow. Verse 10. For even when we were with you. You see this is, this is not something that's new. They already were aware of this. And uh, they already had talked about this and wrote about this. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, they were challenged to aspire to live quietly and to mind their own affairs, to work with their hands as they were instructed, that they may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That was the instruction given. But now they've heard that some in the church were being idle. And so here's the second command in verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. <laughs> Can you imagine? He doesn't say anyone who does not work. He says anyone that, that is not willing to work, because certainly there are times when people are ill or injured, bedridden. 
But if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I know many of you, some of you have maybe uh, etchings on your walls in your, in your house or, or pictures with verses on your walls. Imagine this hanging over your dinner table. And when it, you ask your children, those who have children, and, and maybe I'm the only one that this impacts, um, who will set the table and there's complaining, or who will wash the dishes afterwards, who will wipe down the table, who will wash and, and dry and put away, and who will um, set the table and make the meal, and who will sweep the floor and um, wipe down the counters and put away the leftovers, and when there's complaining and whining, that they would be reminded, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And what would your children probably say? You can't do that. You're supposed to provide for me. Isn't that entitlement? If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And he goes on. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You're not concerned about your own work. You're concerned about everybody else's work. And then we get the third commandment in verse 12. Now such persons, those who are idle, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Work as unto the Lord before him. Do not make a scene and earn your own living. In verses 13 through 15, then, is, is more of the conclusion as we get to the benediction for the end of, of this letter. And uh, Paul, as the primary writer, uh, instructs them, as for you, brothers, Christians, do not grow weary in doing good work. Do not be idle in doing good work. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, including what we just read about idleness, if anyone is, does not obey what we say, take note of that person. And here's the connection back to verse 6. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. That he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Because that's what he is. He is a brother in Christ. He is not an enemy. The goal is reconciliation, not banishment. And the first step is that they would be ashamed of their sin. We need that to be the case. Whatever sin affects us. Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34 I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and get this, and want like an, unarmed, or like an armed man want like an armed man. This is where entitlement reveals its ugly head. You see, entitlement is deceptive. We have to be careful. But we also need to understand that entitlement is deceptive, not just to the world, but it's deceptive in the church. It's deceptive to the Christian. And I want to share with you two areas 
where I see entitlement affecting the modern church today. And the first is this, and this has to do with full-time ministry and missions. You know, Paul, when he was called by Christ, it was such a life-transforming event for him. He was blinded, and we have this incredible list of, of what life was like for him, the hardships that he faced in his missionary journeys. He talks about that he writes, I'm talking like a madman in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he gives this incredible verse or a passage, this list that he even says at one point, um, and apart from other things, that there's more to this than what is just here. And he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And that's a reference back to Acts 14 about Paul and Barnabas at Lystra when, when they were there and Paul saw a man who was crippled from birth. He'd never walked, ever used his feet. And somehow as an apostle, he was able to recognize the man's faith that could heal him. And he just called out in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man did. And the people were amazed and they thought that, that they were gods in the form of men. And they referred to Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes. And they began to uh, make an offering to them. And, and, and Paul and Barnabas were just outraged by this and grieved by it and said, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. But they would not listen and they continued to make their sacrifice to them. And then the Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium, and they persuaded these men, these people, to instead stone Paul. And that is what they did. They stoned him so badly that they thought he was dead. And they dragged his limp body out of the city. They threw him out. And when the disciples gathered around him, what did Paul do? He stood up, and he went right back into the city. <laughs> He says, three times I was shipwrecked at night. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And on frequent journeys, he gives this list of danger everywhere he went. Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food. He was often thirsty and hungry, and it wasn't just it's almost dinner time, I'm hungry. It's I'm hungry, and I have no food to eat. And apart from other things not listed here, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Daily anxiety for the churches he is serving. And in 1 Corinthians, he goes on in chapter 4 about how he feels as an apostle, one who is poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and that those he is reaching out to refer to him like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This was full-time ministry in the early church. This was full-time missions. Is there any entitlement here? I told our students, if I knew even a piece of this was going to happen on one of our youth mission trips, I couldn't in good conscience take them on a trip. I couldn't. 
even one time to receive a beating. Or 40 lashes minus one, I can't do that. Would you? Would you go? Would you go overseas knowing that this threat is there? That you might be beaten three times? Would you go, and if you did, and you received 40 lashes minus one, what would you do? I know what I would do. I would want to come home. But if you knew that was coming, would you go? If you knew you were going to be stoned to the point where the team that you were with thought you were dead, would you go? Would you go if you knew you were going to be in danger in the river, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, and robbers will rob you, and people that do not glorify God and, and proclaim Christ will try to kill you, and those who do, but they're charlatans, will also try to, get to kill you, that you would be constantly hungry and thirsty without food and cold and exposed to the elements. And on top of that, the weight and pressure to serve the churches would be so overwhelming. How does that sound? But there's more. You'll be poorly dressed and homeless. You'll be hated and slandered by people. The people will be, that you'll be ministering amongst will think of you as the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You name the dirtiest animal, and they look at you as the refuse of that animal. Still sounds good? There's more. You will not return home. You will be in and out of prison, and you will be martyred, executed, beheaded. That's Paul. Well, what about the first disciples? Crucified, run through with a sword, beheaded, sawed into pieces. What about the early church? Christians treated as criminals and killed on the spot for not bowing before the emperor, fed to lions and wild boars and burned alive for entertainment as they were presented as criminals before the people. How does that sound? Where is there any place for entitlement in the early church? Where is there any place for entitlement in the church today? Entitlement is an enemy of sacrificial service. The second problem I've, I've noticed is with entitlement that has crept into the church today is, is our view and expectations of church programs. As Christians, we think that we are entitled to have our children and youth trained, discipled, instructed, and entertained by the ministries of our church through programs. We expect our churches to have a youth group, to have vacation Bible school, Awana, junior church, youth retreats, short-term missions trips. These are good things, and they're wonderful opportunities. And people come to know Christ. But in the scriptures, who is responsible ultimately for the training and instructing of our children and our youth? It's the parents. Ultimately, it's the father. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the word, or bring them up in the training and instruction of of the word. What if that were the case of our churches in America today? Now, I don't want to be dogmatic, and I'm not going to be legalistic here at all, 
But just imagine fathers reading and praying every day. That's the top priority. And fathers setting up a time to read the Word of God and to pray with their household every day. Making it a top priority. I mean, really, what could be more important than the reading and instruction of the Word of God to your family? The Word that through the work of the Holy Spirit that can make our children wise unto salvation. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This scripture, the scripture that is breathed out by God, the very word that proceeds from the mouth of God, the word that Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven that would sanctify his disciples, the word that is profitable for teaching them in righteousness, reproving and rebuking them in righteousness, correcting their wrong thinking in righteousness, training them, which like any training needs repetition and time and commitment for righteousness. The word of God that is sufficient for the man of God to be complete, equipped for every good work. What would be more important, fathers, than to do that? And wives, and mothers to support your husbands to do that, to encourage them, to pull them aside if it's not being done, and to rebuke them and to help them. We need help. <laughs> we do. We need help with organization. We need help with finding the right time. And we need to be corrected. I would recommend around the meal table. That's my recommendation. And if there's no husband, if there's no father, then you have a larger task before you to do this as a single parent. And may the Lord help you with the support, hopefully, of grandparents who know the Lord, but also the support of the church. But know that the father ultimately is the one who will be held accountable if he abandoned his responsibility and was able to work and not willing to do so. Let me share with you two final quick points that are good to think about when it comes to the subject of entitlement. And the first is this. Nothing we own is truly ours. Nothing we own is truly ours. Entitlement is selfishness on display. All that we have is from God. It is all His. In First Chronicles 29, we read of David being tasked with the building of the temple, and he would not be the one who would build it. His son would build it, but he took a collection God's people gave for this purpose, and he gave for this purpose. And I love what he says about it. He says, but who am I, and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for, building you house, your house for your holy name, comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. You see, David, they were given. They were giving, and they were giving joyously and freely because they recognized it's not theirs. It's God's. And this giving, rather than taking, 
it was done because they were grateful. And we have to understand that entitlement is an enemy to gratefulness, appreciation, and thankfulness for the benefits and blessings we, that we have received. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Does not say give thanks because of every circumstance, but rather give thanks in every circumstance. Whether you're rich or poor or a national or an international, whether life is really hard or you're on vacation in a hammock down by the bay. This instruction is for God's people who will not receive the due punishment for their sin. Why give thanks in all circumstances? Because our circumstances are not the end of the story. And God is sovereign over them all. And we have what we do not inherently deserve. We have eternal life. God is with us now. And eternity awaits. So in conclusion, the problem with entitlement is that we do not understand what we are entitled to, that we are entitled to death. We are entitled to God's wrath. And if we're not careful, this entitlement that we need to deny and, and, and correct will make us lazy that because it is deceptive not just to the world, but even to the Christian. And we must understand that nothing we have is truly ours. Not even our salvation came from ourselves. It is a gift from God. And so let's be grateful in all circumstances. May God enable us to put to death the false view of entitlement and instead ask him to help us work with a grateful heart. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not received Jesus Christ, your default destination is in store for you. It's hell eternal. But the gift of God, which is presented to you right now, is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you do not know you are saved, I challenge you today, I beg you, today to talk with God about it, to open up your Bible, maybe start in Romans, maybe in John, and read. And may his spirit call you to him, and may his word make you wise unto salvation. If you have questions, we're here. Pastors, we're here. We have a picnic today. I'll be around. We'll be around for a while. Um, I would say stay for the picnic. You can have my meal. I have some granola bars in my office. I can, I can have that. I would much rather share with you some scriptures. As one Puritan prayer concludes, take away my roving eye, curious ear, greedy appetite, lustful heart. Show me that none of these things can heal a wounded conscience or support a tottering frame or uphold a departing spirit, then take me to the cross and leave me there. Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray, thank you for calling me to yourself. Even though my sin entitles me to one thing, your eternal wrath. I praise you that I am not destined for wrath, 
but rather eternal life through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Many live today blinded by blessing and by circumstance. They think they inherently deserve what they have and what they will never have. Life to the full and eternal life in the land of complete joy. Make me aware of the truth, Lord. Eradicate the false ideas that come from entitlement. Everything is yours, but many people hoard it and are blinded by it. They believe they are entitled to your gifts, but help me instead to recognize that all I have is yours, every blessing, including the gift of life and eternal life. Help me to live with the knowledge that I am undeservedly blessed because of your grace. Oh God, make me an example of, to others. As a child of God that has received you and out of gratitude is a hard worker, not idle, but gives you thanks in all circumstances. Help me not to complain when I work, but rather be thankful when I rest. Help me not to grumble in my present circumstances, but rather be thankful for your providential hand that is at work within me. I ask these things of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.